Hello everyone, welcome to Cannabis Tech Talks, your weekly source for news and insights at the intersection of cannabis and technology. Shout out to our title sponsor, PolyScience, for supporting this podcast and helping us bring you the latest developments in this exciting field. This is Patricia Miller, Executive Editor. Joining me today is Jackie Riccio. She lives in Humboldt County, California, and she co-founded Cannabis for Conservation. So today we're going to talk about how cannabis and conservation intersect. Thanks for joining us, Jackie. Can you tell me you know, what inspired you to create Cannabis for con- Conservation? Sure. Um, well, first and foremost, I, I live in Humboldt County, which is you know kind of the epicenter of cannabis production, not only in California, but um, probably anywhere in the U.S. Um, and it's been that way since, you know, the 70s, late 60s, early 70s. Um, so just living here, I obviously have a, a, a very uh, uh, involved community with um, with the cannabis industry. And I I have many, many friends that that were a part of it. And um, being a biologist, it just kind of naturally meshed. I, I went to school at Humboldt State University um, and did uh, completed the the wildlife conservation and management degree, my my bachelor of science. Um, and I was doing field work, and a lot of the field work that I was doing, um, I was frustrated from kind of a, a an ethical perspective because a lot of research is is pretty invasive for wildlife, um, and sometimes it you know it requires a sacrifice of certain individuals. Um, not necessarily like you're, you're, you know, killing them, but, um, sometimes you can handle them in ways that's detrimental to their life, um, and, and could, you know, contribute to their mortality in the long run. So, um, I decided I wanted to do kind of a a different approach with, uh, my career and being in Humboldt, I just kind of, um, saw that there was a, a great need in the cannabis industry um, for conservation and management for more sustainability. Um, and I thought, well, I can, you know, try to create an organization that fills that, that niche. And, um, so I did, and I talked with a lot of other local nonprofits. I got a lot of feedback. I, I, um, you know, joined a couple of other projects and I kind of found, where the need was the most. And and that's really in the kind of land management slash, um, you know, functional ecology side. It's not so much in the sustainable cultivation side. There's a lot of people doing that. And so I wanted to create an organization, first of all, in a profit hungry industry at the time, you know, back in 2016, mm-hmm. um, I didn't want to be a for-profit. I wanted to be a nonprofit um, because I thought that I would be more approachable to cultivators um, and th- and they'd be more willing to participate in our work and in our programs um, than if we were a for-profit industry, which turned out to be true. Um, and second of all, um, I wanted it to, I wanted our work to focus um, not on cultivation methods, but more on the land management um, and ecosystem function aspect of not only having a cultivation, but also just owning a property in a rural area. So a lot of our work focuses on that. And that's what makes us different um, than kind of the other sustainability organizations, if you will. 
So I, I, I think I understand that you're more interested in the land management um, portion of this conservation. So what are your biggest concerns around um, the ecological footprint of cannabis farming as it pertains to sort of land management? Sure. Great question. Um, so there's a couple of, um, I would say, major ecological concerns that not only myself, but most biologists up here are worried about when it comes to not just cannabis cultivation, but any type of agriculture in this area. First and foremost is water usage. Um, we're in a drought. We're in a really bad drought. And um, it's been more and more evident every year that um aquatic life is suffering at the expense of, of, you know, low water levels, uh, or rather because of low water levels, um, excess nutrients in the water that create these toxic algal blooms, um, reduce oxygen levels in the water. Um, and a lot of these species, they, you know, aquatic life. And when I, when I think about like the most important species really that are impacted in our, in our water courses, it's salmon, it's anadromous fish. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. They, um, have a very intricate relationship actually with the land up here. So anadromy means they go out to the ocean. They're, they're born in freshwater. They go out to the ocean to grow, and then they come back up to freshwater to spawn. Um, those fish, when they die, they leave a massive amount of nutrients, marine nutrients that come up to freshwater and they help to literally like fertilize the land. So they have this very beautiful symbiotic relationship with um, terrestrial life, um, foxes, bears, you name it, they come and eat it. And then when they scat, they're, they're, le they're, they're using those marine nutrients, making them more bioavailable for plants um, and helping to contribute to the, the, plethora of biodiversity that we have, the terrestrial biodiversity. So water usage is definitely one. Um, there's a bunch of other, uh, you know, threatened and endangered species, aquatic species or um, semi-aquatic species that are impacted by um, the water use as well. Um, the second one would just be habitat degradation. So anytime you're removing forest habitat um, and replacing it with agriculture, that's inherently not kind of wildlife friendly, <laughs> um, right. maybe for certain wildlife, but that's with anything, whether you're planting tomatoes or basil or cannabis. Um, so just the, the deforestation factor is definitely a thing. And that contributes to um, lower soil quality. You know, when you, when you destabilize soil and remove all the vegetation, then you get erosion control issues and that all that sediment then washes into watersheds and contributes to water quality issues. Um, and, and on that note, I'll say one more thing about the water quality is also these rural roads. So rural roads that um, have heavy traffic that were not constructed and engineered correctly also produce a ton of sediment. And that sediment severely impacts watersheds and makes it very hard for aquatic life to thrive. Um, and then lastly, I would say um, the the leading um, issues from from cultivation sites, at least before we went through the whole regulatory program, was um, the use of generators and these kind of remote wildlands, um, even though they're privately owned. Um, generators create a lot of noise. They also are gas burning, so they, you know, contribute to carbon in the atmosphere. 
um, and they're powering lights. So obviously light deprivation is a type of, a type of cultivation that's pretty common here. Um, and, uh, the lights are very, um, distracting and, and sometimes disorienting for nocturnal wildlife. So in combination of, of the noise and the lights itself, you know, even though people use, you know, blackout tarps, um, there still can be light escape and glare at night that can that can be a problem for nocturnal wildlife. So we tried to kind of address a lot of those issues um, through our organization. And the two that we're we're focusing on the most right now is is watershed health and um, habitat enhancements and, and restoration. Wow. You brought up some really interesting points that I hadn't considered. I'm sure our readers will also be interested to hear. How are, mm-hmm. uh, how are you working to help help farmers kind of see and address some of those issues? Well, we've got um, the two big grants that we just got through the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Those two grants will, will directly help um, farmers in both those ways. So the first one is our implementing drought resilience strategies on cannabis farms in Humboldt County. So that program, you know, like the name says, it's going to help farms become more drought resilient. Drought resilient. So we're um, expanding um, rainwater catchment ponds. We're implementing rainwater catchment systems on roofs. Um, we are establishing water storage tanks so that cultivators don't have to pull from water sources during dry periods. They won't have to pull from their wells. Um, and also, um, during, so we have what's called a forbearance period. So if you've got a surface water diversion, you cannot pull water. I believe it's, um, April through October now. Um, but it'll allow cultivators to store their water for most of the year. And for some cultivators, we're actually giving them 100% water storage. Um, so they won't need to pull from their wells or acquire water anywhere else once they've stored enough of it during the winter time. Um, so that's, that's the, the first way that we're helping with that. Um, the second program, um, that also actually was funded by a CDFW grant, not from one of the ones that we just got, but from a couple of years ago was for our wildlife conscious certification. And that's a collaboration, um, with Dr. Matt Johnson at Cal Poly Humboldt. Um, we also worked hand in hand with CDFW at the very beginning, uh, we had input from UC Berkeley and International Cannabis Farmers Association and a plethora of cultivators. And um, we are developing what we're calling this gold standard for wildlife management on cannabis farms. And it's not um, designed to say that uh, once you implement this, your farm is quote unquote wildlife friendly. We just want people, because that's a very hard claim to justify. Like I said in the beginning, anytime you're removing habitat, you're inherently not, <laughs> you're inherently not wildlife friendly. So it's, it's kind of a bold claim to, to say that a, any type of farm is, um, I don't want to use the word beneficial, but kind of beneficial to wildlife. So that's why we chose the term wildlife conscious. It's farmers that are trying to make their land a functional agroecosystem and enhance that habitat and encourage native species to come back onto their land. Um, So we target species like pollinators, birds, bats, um, small mammals, um, all of which are really important to natural nutrient cycling. and to um, carbon sequestration, um, the broader cycle of carbon sequestration. So 
um, we, uh, we address kind of that second aspect I was talking about of habitat degradation through the wildlife conscious certification. Um, and then we haven't done a whole heck of a lot yet with the generator noise. I mean, the county, Humboldt County already has pretty strict um, regulations as to when you can use generators and the requirement of blackout tarps and things like that. So some of that is already getting dressed, uh, addressed politically. Um, <clears throat> and there's also been green energy grants through the Department of Cannabis Control. The county received a, a pretty large grant to help cultivators um, convert to green energy so they can get um, solar panels um, or what have you. Um, so um, some of that is already getting addressed and we haven't um, really developed a program um, for that yet because of that reason. It's it's kind of already happening. Well, that's exciting. That's a lot of, um, I think, encouraging forward momentum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I... I wondered about, um, this is something I've wondered about here locally as well. I am also in a drought prone region and, um, maybe you can kind of educate me on, on water catchment. Does it pose a, a concern for the recharge rate of the local aquifers if you're doing a lot of water catchment? It actually does not. Um, <clears throat> there was a study that was produced and I, I I should probably pull it up here, but there was a study that was produced um, in Humboldt that says essentially it's only like a third of the water that actually comes, um, th that actually rains down in the form of precipitation here recharges the aquifer. So there's not, um, there's not a, a, a reason to, um, to fear that, that there's not groundwater recharging because you're, you're doing rain catchment. Um, a lot of what's, you know, drought in general, what it does is it dries out the soil to such an extent, too, that, you know, the first rain that we actually get, it just kind of runs off the top. And so that is never recharging groundwater aquifers um, kind of in the beginning of the rainy season anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so when cultivators can, um, I wish I could just, I, I wish I could pan to my window right now. You could see the amount that it is, that it is absolutely pouring outside. <laughs> Um, and there's just water pooling up on the soil and on the lawn um, because it's so wet here. So, no, I think there's an abundance of water and it's really just a reallocation of it. So as opposed to pulling that water when evaporation rates are higher and um, mm -hmm. during dry periods where we need as much surface water as possible and as much groundwater as possible, um, storing it now um, seems to have a pretty um good uh it, it has a pretty good effect on um water usage during during the dry time so um i want to look up and you can keep asking me questions but i'll actually send you a source that you can look at that will help explain that a little bit more um that was a study specific to humboldt about your exact question and i'll find that and make sure you get that cool thank you so much yeah i've just mm -hmm. sort of wondered about that personally so yeah. no it's a great question because some people that have these you know um i don't want to call them big grows but um because humble compared to the rest of the state has actually very 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 small grows i think our biggest grow is like five acres which is like a small grow for santa barbara <laughs> yeah. you know so um so yeah but like when you're storing like you know 500,000 or 750,000 gallons of water or a million gallons of water, you would think that that would have an impact on um, 
the watershed. And I'm definitely not going to say that it it doesn't because everything that everybody does has an impact on something. Um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's part of being a being on this planet. You just, there's chain reactions to everything. Um, but I think in certain water courses, um, the amount that's being caught does not have any type of measurable statistical impact. Um, but yeah, again, um, I will just send you that source and you can, you can get that info. I should probably, those are numbers I should know off the top of my head, but it just came out not too long ago. <laughs> so no, yeah. It's not ingrained in there yet. No. And you brought up some really important points, I think, um, in regard to that, mm-hmm. uh, on a sort of a larger scale, I know you're working in Humboldt, but, um, you know, for our readers, are there general changes you'd like to see cultivators making to sort of lessen their impact on local ecosystems? Yeah. Are you talking about like more broadly? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that um, it is everyone's responsibility, especially, you know, if you're kind of in these rural wildland interfaces, um, if you're a private landowner and you're a cultivator, I think it's really important to, make sure that your farm is a functioning agroecosystem, that it's not just a five or seven acre monoculture with very little biodiversity and very little habitat enhancement for wildlife. Mm. Um, And that is, you know, people seem to have this extremely Western Descartian kind of idea that, um, you know, people are separate from nature and that's an ideal that's been held for a really long time. Mm. Um, but it's, it's an arrogant ideal. Um, and we are (laughs) beings that have evolved. Um, clearly we've, we've undergone evolution. We have humans have a niche. Okay. Like we have an ecological niche and part of that niche is being, um, a habitat creator. A lot of times where people live, we've seen this throughout history, where people choose to live, a, a lot of times they'll create forest clearings or they'll create these kind of refugia, these grasslands um, where, um, you know, other wildlife like that. I mean, we, we know that large mammals like that for grazing. We know that small mammals like that. Birds prefer more open areas with um, with trees. You know, we see that in the research. You're always going to find more bird diversity and kind of open um, you know, um, open areas with kind of aggregates of trees as opposed to like a forest. Um, and so if you are a person that's got, you know, a decent chunk of land or even a small, a small piece of land, even if you're a person that lives in an apartment building or you have an indoor cultivation in an urban area, you should be doing urban greening. You should be doing something um, to either provide little islands or refugia, whether that be, you know, planter boxes outside with native plants for pollinators, um, you know, native plants that are beneficial to birds, whatever you can do, it's really important. Um, and I would say that um, the approach that CFC takes um, is to provide that education and to work directly with farmers, give them the resources, whether that's money or knowledge. Um, to be able to do this. Um, and that is an ideal that is held by, uh, not an ideal, that is a strategy that is held by conservationists worldwide. You know, this has also been explicitly explained um, 
in California's 30 by 30 movement, where they'd like to conserve 30% of lands by 2030. Um, working with private ranchers, working with agriculturalists and farmers is one of the number one ways in which we can do that. Um, and preserving that agricultural land in perpetuity and enhancing it for wildlife um, and for people. It's where we grow our food, but it's also where wildlife can thrive. And a lot of farmers are finding that um, when you invite native species back, when you increase your biodiversity, your pest management uh, strategies go down. You don't need to do that as much because you're leveraging what native species already do. Um, a lot of times they have better harvests. They have better soil, um, improved soil health. Um, they have less um, sediment runoff and things like that into their water courses, which in turn makes riparian areas more healthy. And it's it's the whole cycle. Um, so I'm sorry if that was a long winded answer, but essentially, yes, no matter what you are, I, I think whether you're a small indoor grow in an urban area or whether you're a large um, monocrop cultivation, everyone needs to be participating um, in in the type of ecosystem support that CFC offers. I really appreciate that. Um, I guess lastly, I'll ask, you know, if other communities were looking to to sort of replicate some of the work um, CFC is doing, what recommendations might you offer them? I would say, um, first and foremost, that the best way to do this is to provide the resources for farmers. Um, doing habitat enhancements is actually pretty expensive. Um, putting in hedgerows, um, you know, establishing native plants, um, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of money. Um, and it takes a lot of knowledge. So if if you're in a locality that doesn't have grant programs for that kind of work, I would certainly be talking to your elected officials. I'd be talking to state agencies um, and try to get a grant program um, where you can do this kind of work. Um, there's tons of programs available for um, conservation, wildlife conservation and agricultural lands through like NRCS. Um, and through a lot of other non-cannabis agricultural um, agencies like, you know, USDA. Um, so th they're available there. They're just not inclusive of cannabis yet. Um, and so I think, you know, getting a stakeholder group together um, to actually get some funding to do this kind of work is the first step. Otherwise, um, you know, when you're trying to just do it on your own and find your own funding, we we've also done this. We've done this in other states trying to um, implement our programs. And it's just really hard because when it all boils down to it, farmers don't want to put out, you know, the twenty five dollars or $30,000 that it takes to do just the first initial um, enhancement and restoration, you know? Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And, and I, and I understand it. I, I totally understand it. And that's why like having grant programs um, is really important. And that's one of the main reasons why we haven't really expanded outside of the state. California has got amazing programs for this right now. Um, and part of that is because we've made our voices heard about what we want and what this area needs. Um, and CDFW has been extremely understanding of that. And so as the DCC. So, um, you know, in order for this to happen at, at in other states, either they need to make their existing programs for agricultural, uh, for agriculture and conservation applicable to cannabis farms, um, or they need to create a new fund. Um, and second of all, if anyone is interested in doing these conservation programs, I mean, I will give you the blue book, the blue book for what we have, um, you know, it, uh, the blueprints rather. You are welcome to implement our exact 
um, conservation programs. You know, we're not we're not hoarding them by any means. If, if people want to make their land more, uh, you know, beneficial to wildlife, by all means, uh, reach out and and we'll happily help you create um, create a program. Oh, that's so awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think you shared a lot of great insights. I learned a lot. Um, are there any you know thoughts you'd like to touch on that maybe we didn't didn't hit during our conversation? Um, let me see. I feel like I threw a ton of information at you. I'm sorry I rambled so much, but <laughs> no, no, <laughs> at you least were thorough you... and I really appreciate it. I thought it, a okay, lot of great, great insights came out. Yeah. Great. You have enough to pick through then to create an article. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I think I, I think I would say that um, the, the last thing that I'll close with, I guess, is that there, you know, there's such an opportunity with the cannabis industry to really set the standard for an environmental ethic. Um, it's not often that that we see a nascent agricultural industry, you know, coming into play. And we've seen that with cannabis now. And I don't know how many more of these we're going to have. Um, and so, you know, instead of it becoming big ag and, you know, following the um, the food crop model, I think we have a good opportunity to change that paradigm. Um, and I think that's everybody's responsibility, whether you're here or in Washington or Oregon or on the East Coast. Um, I think we all need to make sure that that's a priority in our industry. And um, it, it's, you know, <laughs> we don't have agriculture without healthy ecosystems. And I just think that everyone needs to remember that. And it can't be something that's that's put on the back burner. Um, we're at a point in the world now where ecological restoration has to be a priority. We're out of time. We, we know that we're already seeing really negative effects and um, huge changes in climate and in um, seasonality and, and the way that, um, you know, plants and wildlife native to specific regions have survived for a long time. That's all starting to change um, and it's changing pretty rapidly. So I think that we can be that industry and, and we're certainly fighting for that and, and making sure that people hear that that's how we think. And we're just going by example um, and, and showing people what it could be like. Um, and hopefully the work that we're doing here in Humboldt can be shared and spread and emulated um, across the nation and even worldwide. If you'd like to learn more about emerging cannabis technologies, be sure to like this podcast and subscribe to Cannabis Tech Talks. You can pick up the most recent issue of Cannabis and Tech Today on Barnes & Noble newsstands across the country, or grab a copy for free on canatechtoday.com. This podcast is produced in part by Pretty Easy Podcasts. Visit prettyeasypodcast.com if you're looking for professional production quality at an affordable rate. Until next time, stay elevated. Hey, hello, I'm Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong. Wait, you didn't think people would know who I am? Duracho. Uh, this is Duracho. This is Duracho. This is Duracho. No, hey, I don't talk like that. You want me to sell this? Buy it. Try Duracho or else. If you want something really nice in your laboratory, buy Duracho. You can't go wrong. This show was produced by Cannabis Tech Today and Pretty Easy Podcasts. 
Go to prettyeasypodcast.com now if you're looking to get professional production help on your own podcast at an affordable rate. Pretty Easy Podcast, making podcasting pretty easy.